on the, on the other hand, <clears throat> once, you, once you get to philosophy and confusion, arguing about which metaphors are best, uh, the next thing is that you've got to set up a bureaucracy to organize society according to whichever metaphor the philosophers or governors have decided is best. And bureaucracy inevitably can, collides with other bureaucracies, and thus we get international relations, which is the highest. See, all of these are different stages of chaos. The Pentagon is a holy shrine to the Discordian society because it shows the steady escalation of chaos until you reach the level of bureaucracy, which looks like the opposite of chaos, but is actually the highest form of chaos until you get to international relations, which is an even higher form of chaos. There is a story about a general who kept moving his desk, and nobody objected because they're all eccentric in the Pentagon. Just look at the United States military policy, and you see that. Nobody objected until he moved his desk out into the hall, and then they started worrying about him. And then he kept moving his desk down the hall, and finally he moved it into the men's room. And at this point, they appointed a committee to decide what to do about him, and the committee appointed a fact-finding committee to make recommendations, and the fact-finding committee appointed a research committee to make recommendations to the fact-finding committee, and after several months, uh, the committee of the first part reported to the committee of the second part, which reported to the committee of the whole, and the committee of the whole uh, came to the conclusion the thing to do was to send a psychiatrist into the men's room and ask him why he, was, why he had his desk in the men's room. So they got an army psychiatrist to go into the men's room, and he's sitting there at the desk, busy working. And the psychiatrist says, pardon me, um, would you mind telling me why you've moved your desk into the men's room? He said, not at all. It's the only place in the building where people know what they're doing, do it, and get the hell out. Sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 23 of Right We Are Sitting Now. I'm afraid it's just me here in the intro. Uh, coming up in this episode, we have a special about our patron saint, I guess you could call him, of the site, Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, we have various guests that have been on the show in the past, including Lon Milo Duquette, Ivan Stang, and some new ones, including the, one of the disinformation founders, Richard Metzer, which is pretty cool. Um, we've also got a competition, which I'll do in this intro uh, fairly soon, but you, you can win yourself a Maybe Logic DVD, which is all about Robert Anton Wilson. It's amazing, amazing DVD. But uh, anyway, first up, we should probably mention that if you go over to citynow.co.uk, which is our, uh, our home on the web, um, you'll notice that there's a, a load of changes on there. Um, first of all, the actual entire site's been completely revamped and it looks really cool. We're still working on a few little glitches. Some of the old HTML's a bit messed up, but we'll have all that sorted by the end of next week. We've got a new forum, which is cool. Go and sign up. If you've already signed up for the WordPress site, you don't need to re-sign up for the forum, which is pretty cool. It's all kind of integrated, so one sign-in. You might have to log out and log back in again if you've got your, you know, there might be some cookie issues or whatever, but big thanks to uh, uh, Joe and Lee at uh, Rebel Media. Um, we'll be doing a music show for them starting probably next week, so we'll tell you more about that. Uh, we've also got new music on the show. Obviously, you probably noticed that last last week, but we'd actually recorded the show before we got the music. So big thanks to uh, Nicky Bovell, 
who helped us record the original Sitting Now theme tune. He's uh, he's going to be basically become our musical director from now on, so expect kind of improvements musically <laughs> throughout the show coming up. Um, yeah, and some apologies, really. I mean, we, we did try to get this episode out last week, but we <laughs> just kept getting new guests, and then also we you know, guests that couldn't make it on and blah, blah, blah. Everything got held up. So now we're actually uh, in, in a bit of a traffic jam in terms of guests. We've got loads of them, loads of them booked up. <laughs> uh, but we did actually record one of the people we recorded on the show for this interview uh, was uh, "Are You Serious?" and the interview messed up for some reason. Uh, have no idea what what happened there. But apologies to to, to him and to you guys for <laughs> us messing that up because it was actually quite cool. But you know we've still got some pretty cool guests on anyway. Stang, Lamar, Decap. It's all it's all good. It's all good. Right, but yeah, I mean, the forum. The forum, we really want people to come you know, come down and chat to us on the forum. It's a great way to interact with us, suggest stuff to us. Uh, we'll be doing competitions on the forum. Um, you know, it's, it's just going to be cool. So this week, we are doing a special on Robert Anton Wilson, who is my probably my favourite writer of all time, especially of his generation anyway. Um, and joining me for the interview is Joe McFall, who's the uh, co-host, along with Raymond Wiley, of the Disinformation Podcast, which you can check out at disinfo.com. It's a, it's a really good show. I think they're actually interviewing Alan Moore. They're about to put up an interview with Alan Moore, which is quite cool. But yeah, we're going to be, you know, discussing Wilson, and then, in, you know, we're also going to have clips, like you heard in the in- just before the, uh, the intro music, uh, of Wilson speaking uh, from various different sources. Now, I'm going to actually point you to those right now, because otherwise I'll forget. Uh, the first one is uh, Maybe Logic the DVD, uh, which we're going to talk about again in a second. Um, you can get that at maybelogic.com, I think, or it might be .org. Give it a go, just Google it. Uh, it's a great DVD. It's a you know, kind of discussion of Wilson's life and work, and uh, yeah, it's got you know, loads of stuff on it. It's really good. Uh, the second source is from soundstrue.com's uh, Robert Anton Wilson Explains Everything, which is like a massive six-disc set with like lectures and talks and interviews it's really good to get as well so go on there and check that out and then some other ones are just sort of random weird things i found so uh apologies if uh, i haven't mentioned anyone oh and we probably might use an infinity factory clip um as well so keep an ear out for that okay so the competition what i want to do is ask a question and if you email it to competition at sittingnow.co.uk um and the first person to get it right will basically get a copy of this dvd the question is, who, uh, obviously our site right, right where you're sitting now is named after Robert Anton Wilson book, but who was the original author that used the uh, the title and then la- allowed Robert Anton Wilson to use it for his book? And that's the question. So if you email that to competition at sittingnow.co.uk, uh, we'll have a, uh, a DVD coming your way if you get to us first. Anyway, let's go... St- Get past me waffling here and we'll go straight into the uh, the meat of the subject. Somehow I have traveled 
from Maui in the east to Berlin in the west, which is half of the time zones on the planet. And I feel like as I've expanded my travel in space, I've expanded my travel through the world of ideas also. And I can't believe I started out a, a good Catholic school boy. <laughs> So, episode 23, we had to do at least a tribute to Robert Anton Wilson, and uh, we'll get to that a bit later on, why that's so Im- that, that number's so important with uh, Robert Anton Wilson. I mean, but one, one thing, I guess the other reason is that the name of our site is obviously directly influenced by Robert Anton Wilson, because it's named after one of his books. So it just, you know, it's, it's amazing, actually, that I left it this long to do a Robert Anton Wilson show, really. But, You've uh, never mentioned Wilson before, Ken? We've mentioned him in pretty much every right. episode, actually, but we've never actually... Uh, <laughs> right never actually done a proper you know episode as it were about him so it just seems a bit uh seems a bit wrong not to have done that but anyway you know we, we got there eventually <laughs> almost a year later but um, <laughs> so what was it that uh how did you first find out about robert anton wilson jay in fact i first heard about robert anton wilson i may have told this story in a few episodes of out there radio but i picked up a uh, church of the subgenius book called High Weirdness by Mail. Uh, excellent, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah, it's a great book, and I think I was maybe 16 or 17 when I picked it up. I was in high school, and it was one of those books that I, you know, immediately devoured and then showed my friends. And I was like, oh, have you seen this? Like, look at this crazy stuff you can get. Like, it's, you know, it's all, and this is, of course, pre-World pre, uh, Wide Web. And there was just all kinds of information in this book about just crazy uh organizations, crazy authors, and in fact I credit that particular book with turning me on to a lot of a lot of different things, including Robert Anton Wilson's book, The Illuminatus Trilogy. Um, and so at, by the time I decided to start, you know, looking around for I guess branching out from that from the subgenius book and started to find other authors that had mentioned, I was uh, in college at the time and it turns out that the college I went to had a pretty good library, and in fact uh, had uh, not only you know the Illuminatus trilogy in its collection, but also several other books that were mentioned in the Subgenius book. So I started, I, I guess, becoming a regular at the university library and checking out a lot of these things, and that's where I first picked up the Illuminatus trilogy. And I actually, you know, I hate to say this. Actually, I don't hate to say it. I mean, you know, I've, I've only read the first two books of, of the Illuminatus trilogy. In fact, um, the other Wilson books, his nonfiction, uh, I found to be uh, a lot more interesting to me personally uh, than his fiction. Although his fiction is, of course, a lot of fun and, uh, and has a lot of other uh, great qualities, um, his nonfiction uh, was what really, really got me. In particular, his books *Prometheus Rising* and *Cosmic Trigger*, uh, and some others. Yeah, so that's that's how I started reading Wilson. Yeah, actually, I was, I was given uh, again I, the first one I read was the Illuminati trilogy as well. I'd heard about it before. Um, I think it again might have been from Subgenius actually on the Subgenius, the very, very early Subgenius website. It was one of like the first sites on the web, from what I remember. It was like on a, hosted on the university server. I always remember it, and. Um, it kept referring back to Wilson, and there was a group as well. I think it was called like Alt Wilson. You know, it's one of those old Usenet groups, and I used to keep right. seeing it, wondering what the hell they were talking about. And actually, eventually, a friend of mine lent it to me. I remember I got about halfway through, and uh, it's one of those books where it's kind of 
uh, we'll, t- we'll talk to uh, Are You Serious about this a bit later as well, but there's this kind of insane amount of information thrown at you. <laughs> like, for yeah. the, And it's completely non-linear, so it's, it, it's kind of hard to explain to anyone that hasn't actually read it, I suppose. It's, but there's no kind of linear passage throughout the book. It kind of cuts back and forwards through time and space and it just throws billions and billions of conspiracy theories at you and you can never quite tell if they're <laughs> kind of based on fact or... <laughs> I just remember it completely and utterly did my head in. So I only got about halfway through the book and had to stop for about three months. Then I had to pick up the rest of it and finish it afterwards. It's, was, yeah. it's like having a, a countercultural Wikipedia in a nonlinear narrative fictional form. Yeah. <laughs> the Kennedy assassination, I've never been satisfied with the Warren Commission. None of the Kennedy assassination buffs have convinced me that they got the right explanation, but I do feel there was some fiddle-faddle going on there, especially in relation to the wounds. You can't read the report from Parkman General Hospital at Dallas and the report from Bethesda in Maryland that evening without seeing the body was altered. The Parkman wounds, as described by them, seemed to fit what the doctors there thought it was, two shots from the front. The the Bethesda wounds seemed to fit the Warren Commission theory of three shots from the rear. And the body was altered. The, the wounds changed their size, they changed their location. I don't claim to know who did it or why or anything like that. That's, that's where every Kennedy assassination buff loses me. After they knock holes in the official theory, then they give their own theory, which doesn't sound any more plausible than the official theory. I don't know what happened, but I think there was a lot of deception of the public going on at that time. One theory I have considered, which most conspiracy buffs don't like because it's too tame, maybe all that was going on was that Oswald, like quite a few other defectors, genuinely defected to Russia, let's say, as a hypothesis. We can make a more complicated one. He only pretended to defect and was working for the CIA all along. But let's say he genuinely defected. He got disillusioned. He wanted to get out of Russia. He went to the State Department. They said, we'll help you get out, but in return, you've got to work for us and pretend you're working for the KGB when you go back to the States. And so he's working for the KGB and the CIA at the same time. This is very common in espionage. It goes on all the time, the double agent system. Licio Gelli was working for the Gestapo and the Communist Underground, both during the Second World War. In the 1970s, while he was running the Pei Due Gladio conspiracy out of Rome, he was being paid by both the CIA and the KGB. This, goes, this is very common. So Oswald comes back, he's working for two intelligence agencies, and for one reason or another, he cracks up, he gets pissed off, whatever you want to say. He decides to commit an assassination, and he does it. Everybody's trying to cover up his connection with their agency, and so all the evidence gets twisted around to cover up the connection with the, their intelligence agency. And there was no conspiracy at all, except the conspiracy to conceal the fact that he was working for more than one intelligence agency. That's a minimalist Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory. I know a lot more dramatic ones than that, but they don't quite convince me. That one doesn't convince me either, but it's more plausible than most, I think. So uh, one thing that I've uh, that kind of resonates throughout all of Wilson's work is he keeps going back to it, even though he didn't actually really, from what I've heard, didn't actually really enjoy the subject directly, was uh, conspiracy theories. And uh, obviously the Illuminati trilogy is the first kind of... Uh, um, 
book where he really kind of explores that. But he also, you know, he's written extensively in a non-fiction capacity. I don't know. What did you think about his kind of conspiracy writing, Jay? Well, you know, it, it, it turns out that I think, I think that his conspiracy fiction is among the first of its kind, uh, at, at least in Western literature. I don't know that there is a lot before that, that that really sort of delves into the whole idea of, uh, in, a fiction, in, in fiction anyway, that delves into the idea of uh, secret societies ruling the world. And uh, his conspiracy fiction isn't really what we typically... And his conspiracy nonfiction. It's not really what we think think of as like conspiracy theory, uh, because it is, but it isn't. It's also, in many ways, uh, takes sort of an absurdist look at conspiracy theory. It's very tongue in cheek, and it doesn't take anything seriously. Which I think is uh, kind of a common a commonality between all of his works. Yeah, and I think what, what I found really interesting was uh, after reading the Illuminati trilogy and then kind of looking at actual kind of conspiracy theorists like uh, uh, Jim Mars and uh, you know David Icke, all these people, you can see that they've clearly got some of these theories directly from Robert Anton Wilson and take them as fact. Yeah, and Wilson never intended a lot of his stuff to be you know, taken as fact. He was, uh, he was skeptical, um, and I mean that in a very... In the very literal sense of the word, very you know, thoroughly skeptical about everything. Hmm. I think Wilson was even skeptical about skepticism. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've had one guest on the show that he wasn't particularly fond of, actually, uh, James Randi. Um, obviously, we had Rand. I mean, we, we got so much criticism for having James Randi on, actually, mainly from Robert Anton Wilson fans, um, because he's. I think he's written a couple of like tirades against Randi, and uh, obviously, the reason we had Randi on was to kind of. Uh, you know, give a balanced opinion and everything but uh, <laughs> yeah in fact Wilson mentions James Randi and his famous um, famous feud with Yuri Geller mm, yeah yeah in in several of his books and uh, you know Wilson I, I believe what is the name of Randi's group the scientific uh, Com- committee for the scientific investigations the claims of the paranormal yeah, psychop isn't it yeah 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 and of course Wilson in uh, in a, as a sort of counter to that uh, has his own group called I think the committee for the surrealist investigation of claims of the normal yeah he said he'd give a million dollars to anyone that could prove um, normality (laughs) yeah exactly exactly (laughs) there's an exercise I learned from Alistair Crowley who learned it from a Buddhist monk in Ceylon it's a simulation of enlightenment yeah, you sit down and as long as you can and think of as many aspects of the answer to the question, why am I sitting here doing this exercise? Well, I'm sitting here doing this exercise because I read about it in a book by Alistair Crowley and he heard about it from a Buddhist monk in Ceylon. But why, why did I read a book by Alistair Crowley? Well, because Alan Watts recommended a biography of Crowley. And you go on adding reasons and after a while you come up with things like I'm sitting here doing this exercise because the... Scandinavians overfished the North Sea in the fifth century, <laughs> and they, they they couldn't make their living as fishermen anymore, so they turned to piracy, and that's why my grandmother's name was O'Loughlin, which means son of the Dane in Gaelic. And then, of course, you're ultimately you come to because the sun is the kind of star that has planets, and this is the one planet that we know of in this solar system that can support this kind of life. If you try that exercise, you should do it at least three times in a, in a month to find out the infinite number of factors 
and coincidences and synchronicities and accidents and utterly inexplicable connections you can find that explain why you're sitting here doing that exercise. One thing he certainly was interested in was uh, mysticism and the occult and uh, particularly Alistair Crowley. Um, and I believe it was actually Israel, Israel Regardi that introduced... Uh, no, it wasn't Israel Regardi. It was uh, Alan Watts that introduced... Uh, Robert Anton Wilson to uh, Crowley um, recommended The Eye in the Triangle book, which I think was an Israel Regardi um, biography of Crowley. In but, fact, uh, Regardi writes a few introductions to a few of Wilson's books. Mm. I think he wrote the introduction to Cosmic Trigger or maybe Coincidence or one of those. Regardi writes the introduction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, is it Prometheus Rising as well? Possibly? Perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's been quite a few editions of that, so I can, <laughs> can lose track of, right. of it. But basically, um, one of the sort of pivotal experiences in, in Wilson's life was uh, after um, performing some of Crowley's rituals, and one in particular, which we'll play a little bit, a clip of him talking about later, actually, uh, which is the uh, Holy Guardian Angel ritual. Um, or one of the Holy Guardian Angel rituals. He doesn't actually allude to which one. But um, <clears throat> obviously, after performing that, he. <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, really, isn't it, Jay? He basically believed he was been contacted by aliens from Sirius. Yeah, in fact, I believe he writes about this in Cosmic Trigger. Um, yeah, he's, he believes, I think he was having dreams where uh, an alien from Sirius was writing on a blackboard, or someone was writing on a blackboard uh, information about uh, about Sirius or something. Mm-hmm. And it was it was more than just a dream. It was like, a, I think, a series of experiences that all sort of related to to serious and alien contact and this sort of thing. But also, I believe, um, uh, Crowley himself had very similar experiences. Yeah, and also uh, of interest, um, as did, so did uh, Philip K. Dick, who was also interested in Crowley. So there seems to be this kind of connection that if you uh, get into Crowley, you seem to go a bit mad. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, I forget the quote exactly, but um, I think that um, Wilson said something about Crowley that to the effect that uh, practicing um, Crowleyan magic is a way to scramble your brain so much that uh, at the end you'll be able, I don't know, that, that something will happen. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know the exact quote. <laughs> but, but anyway, it's, 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 it's his take on Crowleyan magic was, is that it was a way to... Um, a way to scramble your consciousness and sort of reprogram prepare it, you, yeah. yeah, prepare you for different imprints. Which is actually, uh, we'll talk about this a bit more later, but it's actually um, also affected Timothy Leary as well, who had a kind of reinterpretation of, uh, of Crowley. And obviously um, Wilson and Leary were quite uh, good friends. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think they wrote a book together called uh, Neuro, Neuropolitik. Yeah, Neuropolitik. that's a good book. Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, we're going to hear now from um, a guest we've had on a couple of times and uh, it seems uh, quite... Uh, the obvious person to have on to talk about when we've been talking about Crowley, which is Lon Weiler Duquette, and this is a new interview with just a brief one of us talking about his experiences with Robert Anton Wilson, and we'll speak to you after that. Basically, the first thing I was going to ask you was, what first attracted you to Robert Anton Wilson? Principia Discordia. Um, I was um, uh, entertained and uh, fascinated with Principia Discordia, and I heard that uh, a guy named Robert Anton Wilson might have had something uh, tangentially to do with that uh, <laughs> um, that publication, and I thought that that sounded like the, the, the coolest thing in the world. 
but I was uh, uh, I was really introduced to him in the, uh, the early 80s uh, by Grady McMurtry, the, the head of the OTO. And uh, we had all gathered in Sacramento uh, for uh, an event at uh, the university there called an infrasion. Hmm. And the infrasion was... Um, uh, uh, Grady spoke, and, and uh, uh, Bob Wilson spoke, and Kenneth Anger spoke, and Kenneth Anger showed some of his uh, uh, his films, and we were all in a in a big house there um, uh, prior to uh, going over to the Infrasion, and that's where Grady introduced me to uh, uh, to Bob, and um, I was thrilled to death. <laughs> And so he was, uh, he was a friend of, uh, of uh, McMurtry's, and when Luna, uh, when Luna was murdered, uh, uh, Grady, uh, I think, participated uh, in a, like a banishing or something at, at, Luna's, uh, at Luna's funeral. So um, by that time, I was starting to actually read Bob Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's... That's that. A few years, um, a few years later, I think in the in the, the, the mid or late '80s, uh, we presented Bob with our Lodge uh, Award, which we called uh, Adam Weishaupt uh, Illuminati Award, <laughs> uh, and it, we first gave it to Timothy Leary uh, back in 1980, and then uh, a couple years later, Israel Brigardi, and then a couple years later. We presented to Bob at one of his talks in Santa Monica. Of his actual uh, body of work under his name, what resonated with you personally? Oh, the, uh, uh, you know his 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 later stuff actually uh, uh, impressed me the most um, uh, because I, I I've always been sort of a lazy a lazy um, uh, student. And, and Bob's, Bob's stuff required me to think. Mm. And, um, and not that I don't like to do it, but I have to be drug kicking and screaming <laughs> in literature that makes me, that makes me think. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I love uh, something that he wrote just, just before he died. was the, the one that I actually spent most most time uh, with, and that was his uh, um, uh, book that was sort of on conspiracies. Um, I mean, that's that's the, the the one that I could I could more or less you know wrap my mind around his whole beautiful humor, um, uh, you know, take on all of the all of the conspiratorial uh, things, including things that I'm involved in. Uh, had such a healthy, um, a, a healthy overview of things, um, but uh, fate had it that um, uh, Bob and I were often in the same places at the same at the same time, and uh, he um, uh, he was. I got a chance, I, I think, on three occasions to to, to introduce him. <laughs> you know, prior to his lectures, and every year at Panthea Con, and I think for four straight years, 
Uh, Pantheacon is this giant uh, uh, pagan gathering in a hotel. Mm. Uh, this last one that just got over like like a week ago. There's uh, 2,400 uh, very colorful characters packed into a hotel, <laughs> and uh, you know there's speeches and lectures, and Bob Bob spoke there every year. So did I. And so um, the organizers always uh, uh, arranged it that Bob and I would share a room. <laughs> That's and, good. And uh, uh, which I'm sure it made that just thrilled Bob no end. But because uh, you know, because of the Illuminati Award, and because uh, uh, I had. Uh, uh, introduced him a, a few times down in Southern California. Uh, uh, it, it was fun. Now Bob just lived, uh, you know, within driving distance of, of Pantheacon, so we, we weren't sleeping together like Laurel and Hardy, uh, <laughs> because after his uh, after his talk, he would he would take off. But I did get a chance to corner him uh, year after year. And um, the last couple times, he was in a wheelchair. Um, so when it was time for him to talk, I wheeled him down. And, and uh, but because uh, you know, I had this captive audience of, of Bob Wilson. You know, I, I would always read to him. You know, my my latest manuscript, and he was always polite and smiled and laughed where he, I thought he should laugh. <laughs> and. Uh, he was probably thinking to himself, who the hell is this guy year after year that they stick me with? <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's basically my, uh, my Bob Wilson uh, story. Yeah. I mean, um, one thing I've always felt that he did uh, really well was he kind of um, almost popularized magic uh, to a degree in Alistair Crowley's work. I mean, he made it kind of uh, almost... It kind of made it more tangible in some ways for people, you know, that may, may not have found it normally. I mean, that's how I became interested in it, actually, through Wilson. And uh, he kind of almost made it less, uh, I guess, scary, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, his, uh, uh, he, he made Crowley palatable for, for people that actually think. Hmm. And... Um, uh, I remember his opening line at uh, a lot of his talks were uh, uh, something to the effect of um, uh, Alistair Crowley is an eye. You know, whose eye we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was always very cool, and he carried his OTO uh, uh, you know, membership card. Of course, the OTO doesn't give out membership cards, but he was both of everything. And, uh, uh, so, yeah. yeah, he made, he made Crowley, um, uh, approachable, hmm. you know, from a, from an intellectual point of view rather than just a, a purely, uh, magical point of view. And, and I think a lot of people that joined our OTO lodge, uh, during, uh, the, like a 10, 10 year period, uh, uh, from the eighties to mid nineties, uh, uh, most of them probably came to us because uh, of, um, of their exposure to Bob Wilson. Yeah, I mean, he always used to. I remember I saw him once, and he used to. He was talking about the ATO, and he said he was given a card that was uh, 
said the holder of this card is a genuine outer head of the OTO. I was always... Right, 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 right. I was always wondering what that was about. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know where he got it, but, but uh, he and he and Brady McMurtry were, uh, were, were, were close enough to, um, uh, you know, uh, even, nobody objected to that at all. As a matter of fact, we we're very proud to, uh, to. Uh, have Bob is our outer head, <laughs> uh, our outer outer head. <laughs> Excellent. So, what do you think? Um, I mean, if, if, I was wondering if you had an opinion on this, really. But what do you think Raw's legacy will be now? I mean, obviously he's passed away, but his work seems to be as popular as ever. I mean, do you think? Do you think it's still kind of relevant? And do you think that he actually has some kind of legacy? Oh, he uh, indeed he does, and, and uh, you know it, it's sad to it's sad to say that that probably his best years are ahead of him, <laughs> um, uh, because he's uh, he, he's not fading away, and his stuff is is uh, more more relevant as the, as the years uh, well as time time marches forward. So I, I think his legacy. Uh, much like Crowley's, his legacy is, is going to uh, uh, be much more in our in our faces, and much more uh, you know prevalent than, than it was during during his lifetime. She wants to know what quantum physics is. What? Quantum physics. What? What? Explain it simply. She asked. Explain quantum physics simply. Uh, <laughs> from Los Angeles, I moved into what I thought was Santa Cruz. Then we had something stolen from our car, and we called the police, and it turned out we didn't live in Santa Cruz. We lived in a town called Capitola. The post office thought we lived in Santa Cruz, but the police thought we lived in Capitola. I started investigating this, and a reporter on the local newspaper told me we didn't live in either Santa Cruz or Capitola. We lived in an unincorporated area called Live Oak. Now, quantum mechanics is just like that, except that in the case of Santa Cruz, Capitola, and Live Oak, we don't get too confused because we remember we invented the lines on the map. But quantum physics seems confusing because a lot of people think we didn't invent the lines. So it seems hard to understand how a particle can be in three places at the same time without being anywhere at all. But when you remember that we invented all the boundaries, borders, and lines just like the Berlin Wall, then quantum mechanics is no more mysterious than the fact that I live in three places at the same time. Another thing that Wilson was interested in was uh, Alfred Korzybski's general semantics. Uh, Wilson was actually a big advocate of E prime, mm. which is uh, basically English without use of the word of the verb to be. Hmm. Um, I believe that you know part of the idea of general semantics. And Korzybski wrote a book called Science and Sanity, which evidently was a huge influence on Wilson. Uh, the whole idea is, I believe, that you know language uh, in many ways structures the way that we think and perceive. Uh, and, and language uh, language structures our worldview. Yeah. And I think that uh, part of Wilson's point is that, uh, you know, basically, if, if you can be aware of how language structures your worldview, then by changing your language, you can change your worldview. Yeah. And uh, obviously, the famous line from Korzybski was the the map is not the territory. Right. And the point of that is that, you know, we, we take words 
and we take language, uh, we mistake language for uh, what language is supposed to describe. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I remember Wilson saying at, at one point is that, you know, sometimes people would ask him, oh, you know, what's the meaning of life? And he would say, that's a ridiculous question. Life uh, is meaning. Words have, words have meaning. They refer to life. Life has no meaning in and of itself. Where, uh, life is what meaning refers to. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And so that's basically what the map is not the ter- territory means. Yeah. So we basically build, language builds our map, uh, <laughs> actually writes our maps or draws our maps for us. But we have to realize that uh, to, you know, to actually, I guess, navigate the territory, uh, rather sort of properly understand the territory, we shouldn't be limited by our own vocabulary and our own understanding of our language. I guess or at the, least, at the least, be be aware of how uh, vocabulary and language limits our limits our uh, understanding of the world. You know, Terence McKenna said something very similar. I think he said something like, "You know, everyone thinks that reality is made up of uh, quarks and atoms and molecules and things of that sort, but really, reality is made of words." Hmm. So next, uh, we're going to play a clip from Robert Anton Wilson talking about Korzybski, and then we're going to cut to a short interview with uh, one of the founding members of Disinformation, uh, the Disinformation Company, rather, uh, Richard Metzer. So we'll speak to you after that. E prime is English without the use of any form of is or being. We're trapped in linguistic constructs. All that is is metaphor. I believe somebody said that before me. I've decided we can't get beyond words. What we gotta do is get more cynical about our words. You'll find that by dispensing with is and trying to reformulate without is, you just naturally fall into the kind of expression which is considered acceptable in modern science. Also, it's the type of consciousness that Zen Buddhism tries to induce. Using E-prime, you will understand modern science and Zen Buddhism both a lot better than you've ever understood them before. Martin Gardner has written a long essay proving that to think like this will destroy your mind. I, I, think, it, I think it adds tremendously to clarity. I am removing the is from my writing more and more. Removing it from your speech is even harder. Instead of thinking the grass is green, to think the grass appears green to me. And this saved me a lot of time, uh, by the way. I don't get embroiled in arguments like Beethoven is better than Mozart, or rock is better than soul. I define such things as meaningless, and so when people get into arguments like that, I just say, well, Beethoven seems better to me than Mozart most of the time. But I don't say Beethoven is better than Mozart. I return to E-prime in my thinking whenever I find myself getting angry at somebody or or feeling depressed or hopeless or having negative emotional states in general. Once you put them in, and once you take out all the uses out of all your negative statements, you find out they're all relative to how you feel at the moment. People would by and large act a hell of a lot more sanely, especially if they, you know, when they got rid of is, they dropped, they put maybe in more sentences. I think if everybody used maybe more often, the, the increase in general sanity would be absolutely, it would, it would seem absolutely astonishing and completely flabbergast everybody. What the hell is this? We suddenly got a planet full of sane people? When did that start to happen? I didn't even notice it. 
You just listen to the craziest people on the news and on television, or the craziest columnists in the newspapers. You know, they never say maybe. They're always quite sure. And they always know is. And they never say seems. They always say is. I first started reading Robert Anton Wilson's books. I, I guess the first one I read would have been the, the you know one of the the Illuminatus trilogy. I suppose when I was about fifteen or sixteen, and it was something that there were two you know, quite literary types who I was hanging around with when I was a kid who were a bit older than me, and they always discovered that kind of stuff, and then it would sort of trickle down to, like, you know, younger students who were in that same clique. And um, they were always reading things like um, Kurt Vonnegut or Tom Robbins. Um, who else? Um, gosh, I can't think of his name. Oh, Richard Brodigan. You know, that kind of counterculture literature and mm. then um, you know from from Vonnegut I guess it's not it's not a huge leap to, to discovering the Illuminatus trilogy and that's that's sort of how I found out about Bob's work and at that it was those two those two guys who were saying or reading Wilson they were kind of convinced that the Illuminatus trilogy was perhaps a real thing like it, it or it described a real conspiracy in a kind of a jokey kind of like, you know, um, esoteric way. Like, this is something, there's something occult that's hidden within this fiction and that, that it was actually a real rebel group or a real conspiracy or real real rebel groups who were out there and this was a way that they were sort of recruiting. That was their fantasy about it. And it's funny because I've talked to other people uh, as well as, you know, as an adult who said that they felt the same way when they were a kid, that they actually thought there was some truth to it, and this was some sort of like, you know, that Wilson and Shea were trying to get a message out in a, in a kind of a covert way to a large group of people by creating a bestseller about a conspiracy that actually existed. <laughs> actually, quite a lot of uh, sort of contemporary conspiracy theorists probably seem to still think that, I think. <laughs> I would imagine so. I mean, it would, it would amuse Bob, but... Uh, you know, I think that that is what happens. Yeah, it certainly happened a lot at the time. So, I mean, what was it that actually like um, that you kind of attracted you personally? What did, what kind of what did you resonate with? You know, with his actual writings. Well, with me, it would have been references at the time to Crowley that would probably first sparked my own interest, mm. or references to James Joyce or you know these other things that that Bob fascinated by and. Um, you know, it was less about the conspiracy element of it, although I sort of got into that kind of stuff later um, as well, but it was the occult stuff, the occult content, I would say, of what Bob was writing about. Yeah. It, it, it always seemed like there was something there as opposed to, you know, where's the good stuff? You know what I mean? Like, it always felt like you were actually getting uh, something unvarnished and real in a, in a magical sense, you know, in terms of magical literature from Bob Wilson's writing. You know, his fictional work, was that kind of what really sort of um, got you interested initially? Because uh, it's the one kind of area of Bob's work that I really kind of struggle with, um, you know, trying to enjoy. I, you know, the whole cut-up sort of technique thing, it's something I just can't seem to get my head around, you know. I, I really like his uh, his other works, his social commentary, but for some reason his like, uh, fictional work really, you know, I, I just can't seem to get my head around it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, in actual fact, the Illuminatus, the Illuminatus trilogy is the hardest thing of Wilson's to read. It's a very nonlinear book, and it's like reading, like you said, cut up. It's like reading William Burroughs, some of the earlier Burroughs. Yeah. The rest of his fiction is not that way, though. It's very straightforward, and it's very highly stylized and, um, and quite brilliant. 
you know, the um, the historical Illuminatus trilogy. Yeah, I think uh, Ask of the Illuminati, which is a very straightforward book. Um, those are the ones. I actually think Mask of the, the Illuminati is my favorite Wilson book. That and Cosmic Trigger. Yeah. I wouldn't. I would definitely wouldn't put the Illuminatus trilogy in the, my favorite category at all. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found interesting, I was talking to Lon Milo Duquette yesterday, and we both agreed that one thing that Bob Wilson does really well is, in his kind of non-fiction writing, I suppose, is uh, he kind of makes these kind of occult figures and kind of this occult knowledge more kind of accessible and less kind of, uh, less like something that you have to really, you know, dig to find almost. Do you agree with that, Will? No, not really, because he, he would he would you you would be obliged to go further. I mean, if you were introduced to Aleister Crowley, let's say through either reading the Cosmic Trigger as a you know nonfiction example, or um, Mask of the Illuminati for you know as a fiction fictional example, I mean, you would have to go further. Mm. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Or into it, or you wouldn't you wouldn't even have a, a knowledge of it that scratches the surface. Yeah, but I mean, what I meant more really was um, it kind of. It's not the sort of thing that a lot of writers were talking about, and he kind of bring these kind of things like maybe people like Alfred Korzybski, yeah, I can't say that name properly, Korzybski, and uh, you know like Crowley and like Israel Regardi. These aren't people you'd necessarily hear of, whereas Wilson would kind of uh, almost like uh, I don't know advertise them in certain ways in some of his books. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I mean, it, 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 he, um, like I say, I think I just think you're obliged to go deeper. You know, yeah. At that point, yeah. He, I mean, I mean, Bob Wilson does popularize those those writers by writing about them, um, in, in in the sense of yeah, he's like advertising for it. But I think that you need to, um, you you would be obliged to go deeper if you really wanted to, you know. I mean, that, I think that's what he's asking you to do. I mean, it, I mean, largely. I mean, if you look at something like Cosmic Trigger, it's practically a, a you know a, a reading list mm. for sort of understanding, you know, what he went through. I mean, I mean, yeah, that sure. book, like I've never heard of Terence McKenna. You know what I mean? He's writing about Terence McKenna in 1976. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really like a good 15 years before, or even 18 years before, most people had ever heard of Terence McKenna. It was the early 90s, maybe like 94, before you know he was starting to get written about in you know mainstream places. Yeah. So you know, Bob was early on. So you know, I, I sort of look at it as a reading list, and I certainly went out and found you know every book that was you know discussed in the cosmic trigger you know that for everything from the serious mystery to i in the triangle to you know anything else I and mean, it was a it was one of those kind of things that as a touchstone it led you to other things mm. yeah definitely i mean uh, okay so i mean obviously um one thing that seems to have happened since he's died is that the his books seem to be selling again um <laughs> more than they were before at the moment do you think that's gonna main do you reckon that'll continue or do you think uh he's gonna become less relevant over time or well, I think the problem, if you look at Bob's writing, you can sort of put it into, really into two categories. I mean, I, I noticed this when I was um, deciding which Wilson books I was going to keep on the bookshelves in my office and which one of the ones that were going to just stay in the box and get stuck in the garage. And it was, by and large, I mean, you can, you can sort of take, there's the fictional work and there's um, the Cosmic Trigger. And, and just a few other, maybe like quantum psychology or or um, uh, the Illuminatus papers. Most of them, I, unfortunately, I think that a lot of Bob's nonfiction. I think it falls into the same category as a lot of Timothy Leary's books from the 70s and 80s and onwards. It, they're really time-based in the sense that, like, they have jokes and references. In the, in the case of Leary's um, books, 
they're, 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 they would never, it would be impossible to republish them in, in the form that they took in the 70s because there's Jimmy Carter jokes. There mm, were references yeah. to then-current Woody Allen movies like Annie Hall. Yeah. There are references to Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California in 1976. Things like this. And so they become unintelligible to younger readers. And, and there wouldn't be, a, you know, as a, speaking as a former book publisher, there's no market for that. And so they won't. They, I don't think those books are going to see reprinting for very much longer in their current form. I think somebody will have to go through and edit them out somebody with, a, with, a, with a good eye and, a, and a, for, you know, what's relevant and what's not. And it's going to have to go through and maybe make a, a new edition or something. Yeah, I know you what you mean. Some of it does seem quite, like you're saying, the references are a bit out of date and even some of the kind of... Um I was thinking of the uh, what's it called uh, Tzog or you know the Tsarist occupation government, but that's some of the stuff yeah. he goes on about, and that's particularly um, it's social commentary from the time, and it isn't very relevant in some cases. But I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't uh, like you say. I think things like Prometheus Rising and the kind of more esoteric books might. So do you think they'll survive a bit more? Like, like you're saying, quantum psychology, Prometheus Rising. Uh, like I this, do, but I, mean, yeah. I would imagine that you might find that like Prometheus, Prometheus Rising and, um, and, and Quantum Psychology and, and other books of that nature in his canon might get re-edited into one book that mm. would be like, you know, Robert Wilson on the subject of such and such. I think they're going to be anthologized in some way and that what is less relevant will sort of be cut aside. You know, it's like if you watch that um, documentary about Lenny Bruce, it was on HBO a couple of years ago. What mm. was really fascinating about the way they presented Lenny Bruce, who was a topical comedian, obviously, he would go on stage and talk about what was in the news that day. Um, he, there was only one joke in the entire film that needed an explanation, mm. right? And the context was about Elizabeth Taylor getting married, but it was so it was easy to explain. But they cut out all of his topical material and just left the stuff that was there for the ages, the, you know, as it were, the things that are... Um, uh, evergreen thoughts, you know, more philosophy than a reference to something time-based. You know, Bill Hicks, you could look at in the same category. You look at the comedy of Bill Hicks, everyone goes on and on about it, but it's not, a lot of it's really, really dated. Yeah. And it, it, I don't, you know, it's like it doesn't have the same relevance when you don't understand the references or they just seem, indeed, completely stale and historical. It's, it's not the same thing. I think that if, if using Bill Hicks as that example, you might want to, you, you might say that Bob Wilson would fall into that same category with a nonfiction work. Yeah, so you think that uh, actually that's that's a good idea, the anthology idea. Actually, I think that would actually be quite. Oh, it, yeah. It's like it's like what's happened with Timothy Leary stuff. Hmm. You know what I mean? There's 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 you know Timothy Leary on sex, Timothy Leary on this, Timothy Leary on drugs, Timothy Leary on drugs and sex. You know, hmm. they just you know they they sort of you know anthologize them. You know what I mean? Like you know, you know book of aphorisms by Timothy Leary, that kind of thing. But I think that's largely what will end up happening to Bob's work. So do you think uh, that... PDFs are the original books on the internet, you know? Yeah, yeah. No one reads anymore, as you were saying. So do you think uh, Wilson will have, a, will have a legacy? I mean, uh, does he have a legacy? Yeah, but, it, 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 I mean, following on from what we were just talking about, I think that it will be... Um, it, it, it won't be because of the books. I think in, in, in large part, what you're going to find is that, okay, let's look at Aleister Crowley. Okay, so something that was written, you know, latest, 1945 or so, you know, it's like, again, it's one of these issues of like, okay, is this historical now? Is the, what is the relevance of this? Crowley is by and large um, reinterpreted for a current audience by everybody else 
who's come after, and that can be anybody from bands like Current 93 or, you know, Genesis Pure Origin, Psychic TV, or, they just, or to Timothy Leary, for that matter, in the way that he reinterpreted Crowley in his 70s books. But people aren't reading Crowley. They're reading about the ideas of Crowley as filtered through somebody else who, you know, writing in a contemporary time might be more relevant to the reader than mm. going the older text. I think Bob Wilson will also live on. I mean, here's the thing. A book, it's, a book in and of itself probably has, with rare exceptions, you know what I mean, a lifespan of about 15 years. You yeah. know what I mean? Not every book is going to be Huckleberry Finn. You know what I'm saying? It's going to have some relevance, you know, for hundreds of years or Shakespeare, something like this. You know, if you, if you want to compare Wilson to, to a humorist like Mark Twain, obviously there's a, a hell of a lot of Mark Twain's work and, and probably as much as 70% of it that doesn't have any relevance at all today. And it's not reprinted or not read. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But that spirit, uh, but that spirit of Mark Twain lives on in every humorist. So... I think what you'll have is little pieces of Wilson broken up and in the works of other people. Even in Doug Rushkoff's work, for instance, you know what I mean? Or, mm. um, you know, a band like Block Party. We'll talk about Bob Wilson, you know what I mean, in their interviews and stuff like that. So yeah. That's where I think it comes from. I think um, uh, I was w- I watched an interview with you with, where you were talking to Grant Morrison, and I thought he came out with a really good uh, example. He was saying that basically the counterculture goes in circles and... Uh, the kind of the newer generation picks up where the last uh, person left off and i think you know he was basically saying that he was kind of almost picking up where the illuminatus trilogy left off and he was kind of bringing it up to speed almost with the invisible do you think that that that's probably the kind of thing that's going to happen then oh i do i do absolutely i mean that's that's the thing it's like there's there's you know it's it's surprising how it happens i don't think it happens in any kind of neat format but but, you know, Grant was saying that, you know, there's, in, in, in that same conversation that you're referencing, you know, that there always seems to be enough policemen. You know what I mean? Like, there yeah. always seems to be enough, you know, Irish Catholic boys, you know, born and raised in Brooklyn who are going to decide to grow up and be cops and firemen for whatever reason, you know. And, um, <laughs> you know, so that, that's their genetic destiny, I guess. But um, I think that the same is true of, you know, counterculture-type people. Every once in a while, somebody will just pop up and be so completely mind-boggling, you know, that you, you really have to just sit up and take a listen to it. I mean, I would certainly say that, you know, this um, this philosopher, uh, anarchist, eco-philosopher, who I, was, I had just discovered earlier this weekend, Derek Jensen, is somebody like that, where I was like, I was completely, he's about 45, a little bit older than I am, and I was um, blissfully unaware of his work until maybe Wednesday. And um, I was listening to him on a video that's on Google Video called Endgame. It's a two-part thing. And I was absolutely floored by what this guy was saying. And it was really confrontational and very threatening. And, I, and it was and, and quite thrilling in that sense, uh, you know, that you can be intellectually threatened by some anything these days. Mm. And, and I realized, like, okay, like, this is a guy who's definitely picked up the baton from you know, even like maybe the situation is international. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, yeah. there's always some kind of gap, probably. But I think you could certainly look at, you know, I mean, I don't see that there's a counterculture left, frankly. I mean, I, I mean, when Grant, if Grant would say that he's picking up with the Invisibles where the Illuminatus trilogy left off or picking up where, you know, Burroughs, Wild Boys or Nova Express or one of those books left off, you know, um, I don't see that there's much of a counterculture anymore anyways, because Grant's talking about something that's being published not by some underground publisher, but something that's being published by DC Comics, you know what I mean, that have offices in Rockefeller Center. 
a large, large media corporation, a conglomerate, is publishing those works. So it's a much different thing. It takes a, it's going to take a different form in the future. It'll definitely come from the internet, you know. Yeah. But like uh, like we were saying earlier about like with anonymous, that was kind of a that was a nice thing to see almost because it was. Yeah. I think there always will be a counterculture, but it, I just think you're right. I think it's going to change. It's going to have a very different face in the future rather than you know the kind of the face we're not we're used to almost. Well, remember that you're reading about Anonymous not in an underground newspaper that, you know, they call it, you know, the East Village Other or hmm. you know, the San Francisco Oracle. You know what I mean? It's not something that you'd have to be at, like, you know, a rock festival to receive. You're reading about this on CNN. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's, 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 uh, you're reading about it in the mainstream thing. So you have to ask yourself, well, is this, an, is this underground culture or is this mainstream culture? Hmm. It's, it's a bit of a, you know what I mean? Like a, it'll take a different form. That's kind of the thing. I mean, like, uh, you know, counterculture or any kind of culture for that matter seems to be fed back to um, the people who started it really quickly these days. You know, it's like a sort of feedback loop sort of situation. You know, kids come up with something radical and then before you know where they are, it's being remarketed back to them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's like when, you know, we were talking earlier about how you used to, to find rare records and things like this. It was a it was a, as an effort. You know, you referred to the revision quest Ken, you know, we yeah, had to find yeah. these things. And um, but now you can find them very easily. You know what I mean? It's I mean, which is not to say that somebody is not going to enjoy, you know, Iggy Pop's raw power today just because they downloaded it off of iTunes the same way that I loved it when I was a thirteen year old getting it through mail order. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They probably didn't have but I guess I, I guess really that's not true because I had to do unpleasant gardening chores for my parents to be able to afford these albums and today I would just <laughs> be downloading it, I suppose. So maybe it did mean more to me. Yeah. But but you take my point. It's 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 that the, you know, it's like these things are they're readily available and you know, I look at it this way too, even if it's like a situation where there's just a little piece of Bob Wilson or a little piece of Timothy Leary that's kind of floating around in the culture. You know what I mean? It's better than nothing, you mm. know, and it's still reaching a greater uh, audience than it ever has in the past. Well, um, uh, one um, anecdote that I have about um, Robert Anton Wilson is I interviewed him by telephone on a um, on this uh, interview show that I used to do called The Infinity Factory. Mm -hmm. It was probably about 1997. And I'd never met Bob in person, although we'd been corresponding over email for about a year at that point. And um, so I have him on, and I spent the weekend, I was new at interviewing people at that point, so I would really overdo it on the um, research thing, so I wouldn't be caught short on air. You know, that, you know, sometimes somebody can answer a question and it can, you know, you can just scratch off an entire page of your questions because they've covered everything yeah. that you <laughs> ask about. And um, in this case, I was quite interested in asking him about a specific part of the Cosmic Trigger where he's talking about Timothy Leary and the Starseed transmissions and this kind of like received book of, you know, extraterrestrial wisdom that Timothy Leary was left with. And... Uh, you know, and, and it was interesting to compare that to Crowley's Book of the Law or, um, you know, Terence McKenna's Time Wave Theory and all this kind of thing. So I was quite interested in this idea of, like, received books, and I wanted to talk to him about that. And so a, a large percentage of the questions, maybe as much as 70%, were on that topic. And so I bring it up, and he immediately just kind of just shits on it and just doesn't, just doesn't want to talk about it, and he just kind of, like, stonewalls it. And... 
Um, and then there was a commercial break, and I said, um, yeah, Bob, i, I got to tell you, man, I was like, I'm, really, I'm kind of like caught out here because I was really going to ask you about these things in the Cosmic Trigger that relate to Leary in this. And, um, and, and, he, and here's the answer that comes back down the phone line. I'm like, well, I, um, you know, I, I wrote the, you, you, you want me to write those books in 1976? I just can't. I can't have the same. I don't even remember what they say anymore. I haven't read them in years. You know, that's the first thing he says. And then he was like, "I." I was like, "Well, yeah." He was like, "Well, I." You know, I got to say, you know, maybe maybe it's not something that I really believe that strongly in anymore. That I really feel like talking about it. You know, he was like, "I don't know if you asked, um, you know, Timothy himself if he still believes in, in all that kind of stuff." And he basically sort of said, like, "Hey, it was the '70s? It was a different time. People were really into new age and occult stuff back then. There was a period of psychedelic exploration in, in the in the group of people that I was hanging around with." But basically, what he was saying is, "I've moved on from that, mm. but I'm not willing to cut it down or or to step away from it, right? Mm. Because I don't want my readers." You know, he's like, you had fun when you were reading that book. You know what I mean? I had fun when I wrote that, and I had fun when I believed in that kind of thing, basically. <laughs> but he doesn't anymore. You know, he's saying, I've moved on from it, but I don't want to repudiate it because I would like my readers to have fun with it still. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Well, it, well, what it is interesting because it says a lot. What it basically says is, is that the older he got, the less inclined Wilson was to really believe in any kind of occult stuff. Yeah. He still did but it was much more of an agnostic kind of way because he recognized that there were still un unexplained coincidences that he was observing all over the place and that they had to have some, you know, there had to be some reason for that occurring, but he was completely unwilling to, to say, oh, it's this or it's that. I mean, he really, I think it was less of an interest for him after a point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he, and he, he did get to a point in his writings towards the end as well where he literally believed in nothing, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember one time he said to me, and he was like, this wasn't like, this was probably about a good five years before he died, so it wasn't like it was like, you know, in the in the last time that I saw him or anything, but, you know, his wife had died, and, you know, he was, you know, you know it, was just, it was weird because he was just kind of like saying, like, you know, there's a point where, and I've heard this from other older people, and he wasn't even that old at the time, but they say this, but, you know, when you start to see people who, you love dying before you do, and you're still around, and you know it gets to the point where you're like an old person, and all of the things that you loved, they're not there anymore. Mm. And you know, and it, that's when it was, you know, it was like it was, I think I think he thought it was like time to go for that reason alone. You know, it was just he was just much less interested in a lot of things. I think after his life. Okay, well, um, that was Richard Metzer and uh, and another clip from Wilson and. Um, I think the next thing we should talk about, Joe, is uh, I, what many consider to be um, Wilson's kind of masterpiece. Is uh, his, his, I guess his, his greatest non-fiction offering, as it were. And I believe uh, it's called Prometheus Rising. And I believe he actually started life as a PhD. I think. Yeah, I believe it, it was um, published in 1983, but it was originally his PhD dissertation. Uh, it was called The Evolution of Neurosociological Circuits, A Contribution to the Sociobiology of Consciousness in 78 and 79. Um, it, th this particular book, everyone I've ever talked to who has read it has said the same thing, and that is that this book changed my life. And 
I've I've held that uh, particular notion about this book since I read it the first time. Mm. A, really, a life changing book. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the the book looks at. Uh, well, I say basically, <laughs> it, um, the book has sort of exercises, but it it, it looks at uh, Timothy Leary's eight circuit model, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. Yeah, so it's uh, quite interesting, and basically he kind of goes through all the eight circuits, um, and for at the end of each chapter, there's kind of a uh, uh, kind of rituals almost that you can perform yourself. Um, uh, so there's kind of expand your consciousness and, t- and also to kind of test out the eight eight circuits. Would you say that was kind of a, a fair assessment? Yeah, as an example of some of the exercises, I think one in the after the first or second chapter is uh, visualize a quarter, and you know try to visualize it as often as possible and you know keep thinking about finding a quarter and just see how long it takes for you to find a quarter on the ground hmm. yeah just the exercise just an example of the kinds of things that he recommends doing yeah and they they, they have some quite <laughs> interesting uh, outcomes i often find when you practice sure. them and actually there's yeah. a, a, a book that i think will it's probably actually alongside the right way of sitting now obviously uh it's probably my favorite of uh uh, Wilson's books, which is uh, quantum psychology, which in many ways is is a uh, uh, it's a kind of sequel to Prometheus Rising, but it, it tends to include group work rather than the individual doing uh, these kind of uh, exercises. And uh, yeah, for some reason, it wasn't as uh, as widely, it, although it's you know, considered by many a classic, it wasn't actually as widely uh, received as uh, Prometheus Rising, which was a shame, I thought. But and we actually. Uh, Talk to Taylor Elwood about this in our next qu- uh, clip, and uh, yeah, we'll speak to you again after that clip. What first attracted me to Robert Anton Wilson was, uh, you know, I was back in like the late '90s. I was I had met some uh, people on Topi Temple of Psychic Youth, and one of the books that they were reading was Prometheus Rising. And I decided to pick it up because I thought it was really interesting. I was very interested at the time in metaprogramming, and, you know, um, John Lilly's work. And I saw some definite correlations between that and uh, John Lilly's work. And I wanted to discover what those exercises could do for me. So I started reading his uh, Prometheus Rising, and I found it to be really useful at that time for being able to diagnose a lot of my dysfunctions and uh, kind of give me a framework within within which to work with them. Uh, and also found it useful as far as applying a psychological model to magic. So uh, was there anything that within the work that you kind of like personally resonated with, you know, like uh, that really sort of like reached out to you personally? Well, you know, at that time, I would say it was just providing, it, it was the fact that there was a structure being provided for me to work with my mind, uh, you know, with, with my psychological aspects a bit easier. You know, you have these eight, eight circuits, or if you will, eight personalities uh, representing different types of interaction. And I found that to really resonate really strongly with me. And even to this day, just a bit, it still does. A lot of my work with identity, uh, it's it's fair to say, is in part based off of um, Robert Anton Wilson's work. Although it's also to be also to be fair, it's a lot of that work is also a criticism of his work and where it doesn't go far enough, in my opinion. Um, that said, that's that's kind of that's 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 one of the beautiful things about his work is that it has been so influential. Um, 
in, in some of the identity work that I do that, you know, even if I don't always agree with, with his, his ideas and concepts, I think that he would find that delightful, even though he and I would probably have a bit of a, uh, uh an argument of sorts <laughs> if he were still alive, <laughs> but that we would, we would, uh, that he would end up finding it delightful because he's the kind of person that never really believed in dogma. So I think the fact that I don't necessarily fully agree with all of his material is actually really good because it, it, it is a continuation of the spirit of exploration that he always advocated in his works. And I would say that that, even more so than his models, is what has really influenced me, is that exploration of, you know, that exploration of possibilities, being open-minded, not being dogmatic. That's something that I have really respected about uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And it is something that is uh, a hallmark of my own work, and some of that definitely can be uh, said to have come from reading his works and seeing how he approached things. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously you come from a kind of experimental magic background these days. Would you say that within the community that Wilson uh, was was influential generally within the community? I mean, was there particular works other than maybe other than Prometheus Rising, maybe stuff like quantum psychology that kind of might have influenced that kind of, the kind of experimental magic community as it were i'd say quantum psychology to a degree but really when it comes right down to it his most influential work in in, in all and in, in, in the occult community period is prometheus rising yeah um that's the one that people talk about it's yeah. it's the one that when they're, they're like oh i've read i'm reading prometheus rising right now or i'm working on you know the, the this particular book they they usually usually when i hear about him, I hear him also in, in uh, tandem with Ontario Lee's work on uh, the Eighth Circuit model as well. Hmm. But pretty much, uh, that's that's you know that's that's where he's really that's what he's really well known for. I have read Quantum Psychology and I found it useful. I think it's a shame that it's not as explored. It's not explored as much in the occult community. I mean, I, th I certainly think it's been read, but I don't really see a lot of writing on some of the exercises in it. It's really a great book to use for group work. Mm. Um, I actually have a, a group of experimental magicians that I work with, as you know, and uh, occasionally some of the experiments that we do are drawn out from that book as a way to kind of test some of the concepts there. So I think that there's, I, th I think I would really actually encourage people to pick up a copy of Quantum Psychology and give it a try because. I think it's an extension of uh, Prometheus Rising and actually takes a lot of the concepts of Prometheus Rising and provides them a more of a practical face, as it were. Yeah. Because in Prometheus Rising, there's a lot more theory. And in quantum psychology, you actually start to see the theory turn into practice. Yeah, definitely. Um, would you say that uh, Wilson's work is like still in, is still going to be relevant and important like uh, today, as, as is, sorry, as is important today as it was uh you know, when it first came out, and also, do you, do you think it has a lifespan? Do you think it will continue to uh, be influential? I think it'll always continue. It'll, it'll it'll be influential up to a point. I think at some point it won't be as influential. I think that as time goes on and people change their models of psychology and such, that that it will not, it won't have this quite the same influence. But I think it'll always have some influence. And I think it's good that it won't always have the same influence. To be honest with you, and the reason I think that is because. If um, if a if 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 a if a model is still viable a hundred years later, that's great. But if it's not tested or questioned, that's when it becomes dogma. Hmm. And I and I have to admit that one of my reservations about Robert Anton Wilson's works 
is that sometimes people will talk about how they've done work with you know Prometheus Rising or whatever, but what they won't talk about is any of the other models of psychology that they've looked at or any of the other forms of internal work. And there's a real danger of getting some blinders on when you focus only on one person's influence or ideas. We, we see that with Aleister Crowley and, 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 and to a much, much, much lesser degree with Robert Anton Wilson. That said, I think his work is influential today, and I think it's something that's worth looking at as long as it's balanced with a, with a perspective of what are some other approaches, what are some other models that can be applied as well. And I think Robert Anton Wilson would, would, would encourage that as well. He yeah, say, definitely. don't <laughs> look to my work. Mm. He would say, you know, test test some of my ideas, check into some of these other models of psychology, these other models or approaches. I, I certainly I, I certainly do hope that he will always be influential uh, to some degree because I think that if he wasn't, we would be missing out on the treasures of one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it, it, totally exactly what you said. I mean, I have... I must have like probably 50 I'll say recordings and lectures of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's and he always talks about these kind of multiple models that he uses I mean he, he, it's 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 why we had people like James Randi on our show as well you know it's one of the kind of influences on on us I suppose as as you know as the website kind of thing and uh, yeah it's super important I completely agree it's really important to uh, you know use multiple models to explain one thing I mean the map is not the territory is a famous expression that he used to use all the time and obviously from Korzybski and I think yeah I'm absolutely sure he'd uh, encourage people to use multiple models definitely I was gonna ask you as well I mean do you think Raw has uh, Robert Antimorsen has a legacy I mean uh, what would that legacy be I think that legacy is reflected in the works by Antero Ali uh, on the Eighth Circuit model and I think that that it's also reflected in, in the people that use his, his models, his, his ideas, his concepts, and continue to read his works. I mean, his books are his legacy. Hmm. I, I think that the other part of his legacy is, is, very, is very much a spiritual mental uh, philosophy of, again, encouraging people to be open-minded, encouraging people to explore, to experiment, to not just settle for what one person has done and, and actually I would add to that an emotional legacy one of joy hmm. you know when I read all of his books every single one the one thing that I always notice as a consistent theme is man this guy seems happy <laughs> yeah he always seemed happy and you know I don't I, I never met him in real life so I can't vouch for the fact as to whether he was or not but you know if if you know you can uh, if, if you can put that kind of stream of emotion into your works it's generally probably going to be the case that you actually are and i think that it was really influential uh, I, I think that's really influential you know finding joy in what you do you know he brings this joy into his work and i think that you know it's a, a fundamental question that he ends up really asking through his books is why are you doing this stuff what makes what motivates you to do it and uh, you you know, joy, happiness is certainly an integral reason for doing anything, and he he definitely put that into his works. That's one of the things I really respect about reading his works is there's this, this sense of joyful exploration. Okay, that was Taylor Elwood, and um, I guess one of the next things, which is a was a massive influence on uh, a group we'll talk about shortly, <laughs> was a. Uh, Wilson's Discordianism, which I think didn't it start life as a book called Principia Discordia? That's correct. It was um, 
originally conceived of by a man named Cary Thornley and some others uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And it, Wilson mentions it, I believe, for the first time in the, in the Illuminatus trilogy. And it, uh, the Discordian Society plays a big role in that book. And uh, it, you know, when I first read Illuminatus trilogy, I thought that the Discordian Society was sort of a, a you know, a a plot point or a work, a, you know, part of part of a fictional narrative. Until I realized that the Principia Discordia actually exists. You can go buy it, and it's a you know, Discordian Society was a, a real group, if you can call that a group. Mm. But uh, Discordian Society ended up influencing a lot of other people, including uh, uh, Ivan Stang and the Church of the Subgenius. Yeah. Although I believe when when we talked to him for Out There Radio, I think he mentioned that he didn't. Um, know about the Discordian Society until after they'd already started yeah, uh, working on He didn't think it was real, did he? He thought it was just a made-up group in the Illuminatus trilogy. <laughs> and uh, right. then found out that, you know, cause I think when they were handed... Because when Subgenius started, they used to hand out these kind of uh, pamphlets rather than this before the book of Subgenius was published. And yeah. uh, then bared a striking resemblance to the Discordian. <laughs> from yeah, Discordia. This is great... Uh, uh, this is a great biography of Carrie Thornley by uh, Adam Go Rightly, and we talk about we talked to him about that for, for Out There Radio about Carrie Thornley and um, Carrie Thornley and Wilson were friends, and I guess you know Carrie Thornley towards the end of his life he uh, he may have he, he was mentally ill I guess um, or something hmm. um, very paranoid, and he ended up at the end and Wilson may mention this, but uh, Thornley uh, ended up in the end believing that Wilson was uh, part of the CIA and that maybe Wilson was Carrie Thornley's CIA handler. <laughs> That's interesting because um, a lot of people, well, after someone announced that Rob Anton Wilson had died and um, uh, there was a big conspiracy. I'm never quite sure how serious this was, but uh, on, online there was a big conspiracy that uh, Wilson had been um, replaced by an android or something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he'd actually died. So he always thought, well, it was just the Philip K. Dick example that you know, if he was a perfectly pr- programmed android, not even he would know if he was an android. And <laughs> right. that, was, that was cool. Uh, I think that Wilson said, and other people may have said this, but the reports of my death are slightly premature. <laughs> and I believe at the time, in fact, Robert Shea, uh, Wilson's co-author on the Illuminatus trilogy, had in fact passed away. And I think uh, people had maybe, I don't know if that's the exact story, but I think people had maybe mistaken uh, the two Roberts, Shea and Wilson, for uh, one for the other. I mean, going so. back really quickly to the Principia Discordia, um, in a way, it was in some kind of the first really open source kind of book, wasn't it? In a way, I mean, anyone can add to it. That's the kind of point of it, isn't it? It's like a, a crazy kind of manual written by the Discordians, but obviously the uh, Discordians tend to stick apart, don't they? <laughs> That's one of the. Uh, <laughs> right, right. One of the guiding and, uh, principles. You know, in fact, Discordianism is many wa- in many ways an open source religion. Anyone can be a Discordian pope, and anyone can start their own chapter of Discordian society, I guess. Mm. Um, but I believe that you know you're supposed to be the only member uh, of your particular <laughs> chapter, yeah, and the and the only pope. So. I know that Wilson um, once went on BBC Radio in the UK, and I think there's like three million listeners, and he. Uh, made everyone Discordian papes I think up in the uh, amount of Discordians from like several thousand to several million in one fell swoop I thought that was quite yeah yeah I believe he used to do this at any time he had a speaking engagement he, one of the first things he would do is uh, uh, can, uh, 
I don't know what the word is when you make someone a pope, but he would make the whole audience a pope. And I, yeah, I remember seeing a clip of him talking about how when he went on the BBC, he was able to, you know, make the whole audience a pope. So several million <laughs> people all at once were disc- made Discordian popes by Robert Anton Wilson. <laughs> Now the next guy we're uh, we're bringing on the show is someone that has been on since the early days of the uh, of the show. Um, he's also quite interested in turning people into uh, religious uh, <laughs> reverence, I suppose. <laughs> uh, we've, uh, and he was also heavily influenced by Wilson and Discordianism generally. Uh, this is uh, Reverend Ivan Stang, one of our favourite guests. I'm I'm one of those people who stumbled upon the Illuminatus book first when it was in cheap paperback form. I, in fact, I found it in a supermarket at, in the um, well, probably around 1976 or 77. I forget when it came out. But uh, it had a it had a yellow submarine and an eye and a pyramid on it. I thought, well, that looks weird. I'll try this. <laughs> and it was fantastically weird. I, I, I thought, oh my God, this, 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 this is I guess I'm not the only one who's completely crazy. <laughs> Um, and uh, I, I, it was really inspiring. And, and if I had said many, many times that uh, if it hadn't been for Wilson and Shay's Illuminatus, there might be a church of the subgenius, but we wouldn't get it. <laughs> uh, and, and it probably wouldn't be funny. It would be all the, the wrong sort of thing. Uh, but uh, when we finally put together uh, the very first subgenius pamphlet, I was desperate to um, send it to to uh, my heroes, you know, uh, which was underground comic book artists and and uh, people like Shay and Wilson, especially uh, Shay and Wilson. And somebody, oh, Paul Mavridis gave me Wilson's address. I think he was, I don't, I don't, can't even remember if he was in Ireland then or not. But I came up with a, a bullshit excuse for why I was contacting him, because at the time I didn't understand that, I mean, I wasn't a published author then, and I thought, you know, published authors don't want to hear from fans, and, you know, they're, they're, they're rich and famous and standoffish. And I later learned that that's only true of the, you know, the three or four a year, uh, you know, who are <laughs> chosen to be the uh, bestsellers, Stephen King types and so forth. But um, I, I wrote to... Uh, Wilson, uh, asking him a question about a UFO group that he had mentioned in his uh, in, in Illuminatus or somewhere, uh, the Silver Shirts, because they were in Texas. And I thought, I'm in Texas, so that'll be a good connection. And much to my tremendous surprise, he wrote back a friendly letter telling me what he knew about this obscure little group. And he said, if you get into any further into UFOs, try to keep your sense of humor. <laughs> and that was my end. I said, uh, uh, I'll prove to him I kept my sense of humor, and I sent him the Subgenius pamphlet, and much to my surprise, he absolutely loved it and um, kind of gave us a pat on the back, and when we got our, our book deal, you know, he gave me a nice quote to, to go on the back of the book. Mm. So he was always very friendly to us and remained extremely friendly towards churches, Subgenius, to, uh, to the end. I think the last time we saw him... Uh, in person was at Winter Star a couple of years before he died. And a friend of mine was uh, helping him around in his wheelchair and so forth. But uh, he was in great spirits even then. He was really cheerful and very, very funny. He always struck me as being a really funny person. 
um, I would get asked to open for him when he when he'd speak in Dallas or Austin back when I lived in Texas, and that's how I would like ended up having a few meals with him and and uh, got to tell him how much I admired him. But one of my very favorite memories was um, back when Robert Shea was still alive. The folks who run Winter Star and Starwood. Um, ACE, or the Association for Consciousness Exploration in Cleveland, hmm. brought Shea and Wilson both in. And uh, I had the most wonderful evening just sitting around listening to those two guys talk about movies. They were both really big movie fans with hmm. uh, encyclopedic knowledge of, of, uh, m- of the whole history of movies. And uh, I, it wasn't what I expected, you know. I kind of expected these guys to be talking about something sort of heavier or, or lighter or something, but it was just, <laughs> uh, just movies. And it was a, really a delightful conversation to to sit in on. Yeah, I actually checked out a movie that he recommended to me. Well, to, not directly to me, but recommended in an interview called uh, F for Fake. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Uh, yes. Yeah, he he, uh, he. I've heard him mention that one. In fact, I think he talked about it at one of the Winter Stars because it had just recently sort of been re-released. Mm. Yeah, it's um, excellent. I mentioned to him the movie The Trial, which was uh, an Orson Welles film. Oh, it's a Kafka. Yeah, Kafka. Yeah, mm. and he jumped up and down and said, "That's my favorite movie." <laughs> excellent. So it seemed we had. Uh, at least some sort of similar case in movies. They, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's it's really amazing. It's mm. hard to find. Yeah, they remade it as well, didn't they? Uh, which I, I prefer the original, though. But <laughs> I don't know. The only one I saw had Anthony Perkins as the protagonist and mm. was stark, stark black and white. Yeah. I later learned it was shot in France. Ah. But... Um, uh, Oh, and then the other thing that happened, that particular winter star, I think Robert Shea met the woman he married. Ah. Um, uh, he may have been married before. I mean, mm. these guys were in their 40s or 50s at this point, maybe even older. But there was a lady speaking at Winter Star, um, and he, uh, she and, and Shea met, and the next thing we knew, they'd gotten married. Ah. And then Shea died, which was just awful. I mean, it was it was really sudden, and... I, I felt so sorry for his brand new wife. Yeah, and he was actually quite a, a, a good writer in his own right, wasn't he? I mean, I've... Well, I've never read any of his solo novels, I'm sorry to say. Ah. <laughs> re- I haven't read everything Robert Anton Wilson wrote. No, I think it's quite hard. He's, he wrote quite a lot of stuff, didn't he? Yeah, I think I could write faster than I can read. <laughs> so, um, But I, I one time had the experience of this isn't something I do all the time. In fact, it's been years since I did this, but I was tripping and reading Schrodinger's Cat <laughs> on an airplane. Oh, wow. I already read the, most of the trilogy, and I was coming down to the end of it. And I was, uh, obviously, since I was on a plane, I wasn't and reading a book. I wasn't tripping really hard. Mm. But for some reason, it all seemed to come together, and when I got to the end of it, I was so convinced that I sort of understood what he was saying <laughs> that I wrote him a long letter on the back of a vomit bag, you know, an air sickness bag. Mm. Uh, I don't know if they even include those in planes anymore, but it, there was just enough room, and I, I mailed him the uh, handwritten note on the uh, uh, bag, and I, he later told me he really appreciated it. 
<laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, but talking about his the, work. The thing that, well, go ahead. I was going to say, talking about his work. What was the what particular uh, books of his, other than Illuminatus, uh, did you kind of like really resonate with? Well, the, I can't remember which book this is in. It's one of the collections of essays. But he wrote a very out of character, serious thing about the death of his daughter. Oh, who, right, yeah. Who, was, uh, who died in, in a violent attack when she was 12 years old. I was, uh, at that struck me, and I, I told him this, uh, I, that, that to, to me, out of all the things he'd written, that uh, description of how he dealt with the tragedy of his daughter's death stuck with me more than anything else because it was so very real. And at the time, I had a 12-year-old daughter and lived in a really dangerous neighborhood. You know, and was worried about that kind of... You know, you couldn't let your kids walk on the streets in the daytime. Mm. Um, now, this, of course, was 20 years after what had happened to his daughter. But... Um, that... I can't remember which collection it was in. It's in Cosmic Trigger. Yeah, I was going to say, it must have been my Cosmic Trigger. It's the one that I don't have a copy of left because I've loaned it to somebody. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, that it was just so real, you know. Hmm. So much of what he writes about is in the flighty, airy realms of mysticism and philosophy. But, um, but you know, when he gets down and dirty, that's uh, that can mean a lot, too. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Oh, it just tore me up reading about it, but it also was kind of inspiring, you know, the the fact that he had to come to grips with all that. I'm sure he felt kind of partly responsible because he wasn't making enough money to live in a safe neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, honest, isn't it? It's a very honest depiction of what happened, I felt. Yeah. It, it uh, well, it, it really, it pinned me. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's... It's been interesting. I can tell you that Robert Anton Wilson was one of the hardest people to record in the world. He <laughs> would not work with a microphone. <laughs> you had to put that thing right up against his lips, and then hope he didn't change position, <laughs> uh, because he would con- he did, uh, talked in that nice Brooklyn monotone. Mm. Uh, but it, it, he was not very mic friendly. <laughs> so in um, I I always every time he spoke I found myself uh, having the nerve to run up there and adjust the mic a little bit <laughs> in the middle of his of his thing because he he just didn't seem to want to speak up. Once when I was opening for him, I was uh, this was in the early days and I was kind of insecure and had a couple of drinks before I went on, which I would never do now. And I went on and screamed and yelled and hollered in this little bookstore where he was speaking. When I got off, he, he he walked up to the podium and said, "After the storm, then the calm." <laughs> <laughs> I felt kind of like an idiot, but, uh, but I've always felt like kind of like an idiot, so that wasn't any of a change because of my position in the Church of the Subgenius. He was very, very friendly, considering. Um, you know, when I first approached him as a fan, he didn't treat me like a jerk. He gave me really good advice, and uh, I, I, I 
could not possibly be that polite. <laughs> <laughs> not after what I've been through. <laughs> I mean, uh, one thing that we've I've been talking with the other guests about is the what we think that Rob Anton Wilson's legacy will be. Um, I mean, it's strange that he seems to have become. Uh, he seems to be as popular, if not even more popular now that he's actually uh, passed away. And it's a bit like, almost reminds me a bit of, uh, I was talking to Lon Milo Duquette about this, it reminds me a bit of uh, Alistair Crowley in the way that he suddenly became more famous and kind of more read after he died. And uh, I was wondering, do you, do you think that the war, uh, Robert Anton Wilson does have a legacy? Oh, uh, obviously he has a legacy. And uh, unfortunately, it goes two different ways. Uh, on the one hand, there are probably numberless people who uh, his uh, writing inspired to uh, go in a really positive, what turned out for them to be a really positive direction. On the other hand, there's people who read philosophy and mysticism and never pick up on that that whole maybe thing. Mm. Uh, and so they will take figurative things literally uh, I think that uh, Pope Bob has the same problem as the Church of the, of the Subgenius in that uh, some of it, sometimes it only makes assholes worse. <laughs> and it, it's not just us, it's any religion or, or mysticism related type thing or philosophy can function as something that just justifies a person's already bad behavior. Yeah, if they misunderstand it, and it's really easy to misunderstand somebody who's right. Half the time, Wilson is being tongue in cheek, and it takes a lot of subtlety to pick up on that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, some, sometimes he's very blunt and plain and speaks exactly uh, what he means, and other times I think he's playing games. And I know he was playing games. I mean, he told me so. It was like, I've, I've had several writers go, hey, now, don't take this stuff too seriously. I've had to say that. Mm. And, oh, God, sometimes it doesn't do any good. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, um, from, from uh, what I can tell from looking at the last interviews with him that were in the, the Maybe Logic film and, and so forth, it, it seemed to me that he uh, kept his sense of humor to the bitter end, and that's a lesson for all of us uh, really there's the, the that whole maybe you know as he said if if only people would say maybe more often it might solve a whole lot of problems yeah yeah definitely and uh, to me that's kind of sums up what that's what i got out of wilson's material i like to think that knowing him helped make me a little bit less mean and a little bit nicer and a little bit more tolerant of other people's viewpoints and a little bit less sure of, well, a lot less sure of my own opinions. Things that I thought were facts, uh, his work helped me to realize, no, no, what those are are opinions. And uh, you really don't know. And so, you know, you maybe this is the way it is. <laughs> and and I, I really do... Uh, that used to be when I had a SIG on the internet. My SIG was often that quote by him. Yeah. Maybe, if everybody said maybe more often, the world might be an easier place to live in. And, and I, I, maybe that's right. <laughs> 
So if you wonder, if you get a deep intuitive understanding of the relation of something and nothing, then you're in a state of slack. <laughs> and slack, slack is even better than nirvana. Because, <clears throat> because if you're in slack, you are in the balance point between something and nothing, and then you can get something for nothing. Um, this, 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 this was revealed to J.R. Bob Dobbs, the founder of the Church of the Subgenius by L. Ron Hubbard on an elevator in uh, Palm Beach, Florida in 1957. J.R. Bob, Bob Dobbs was only a humble aluminum siding salesman at that time, but it just took one meeting with L. Ron Hubbard, and he learned the secret of power and how to stand on the balance between something and nothing and get something for nothing. And he founded the Church of the Subgenius, and now he's one of the richest men in the world, but he still acts like a regular fella. Of course, it's very hard to see Bob these days because he's reached such a tremendous level of spiritual elevation that most people who've met him can't even remember the experience. It's like a UFO contact. There's partial, there's total or partial amnesia, conjunctivitis and eye strain, uh, nervous symptoms, sometimes it requires hospitalization, uh, and you almost inevitably you're persecuted by the men in black afterwards. The men in black are agents of the conspiracy. The conspiracy is all the groups that's trying to stamp out the church of the subgenius. It consists of all the other religions in the world, the Rockefellers, the OPEC nations, and the people who put Hawaiian music in elevators, uh, and all other evil and sinister forces like that. So if you've met Bob, they'll send the men in black around to persecute you. Don't be afraid. The men in black will come to your door pretending to be Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and they, will try, they will try to get into your house. The thing to do is greet them in a friendly way and say, I we're glad to see you. This is a Satanist temple. We were looking for subjects for a sacrifice, and we're glad you've arrived. This, this will absolutely guarantee you will never be bothered by Jehovah's Witnesses again. They send a report back to Kingdom Hall with your address on it, and nobody ever goes there again. It really works. This is not a put-on. It really works. They believe in that sort of stuff. Well, uh, that was a bit of an epic episode of many different <laughs> clips. It's a bit, bit chaotic, you might say, uh, which is probably a good thing when we're talking about Robert Anton Wilson. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, I mean we've been ask- I've been asking all the guests this, um, uh, but I ask you as well, Joe. I suppose what do you feel is the uh, what, what's what, what's Robert Anton Wilson's legacy? What's he going to leave behind for everyone? Well, obviously, you know, Wilson is an important philosopher to the uh, generations of counterculture uh after the 60s and you know i think in many ways wilson was able to crystallize and synthesize a lot of works a lot of prior works including as we mentioned crowley and uh of course thank you ken and uh and and as well as leary and gurdjieff and and many others um and and so I think what Wilson was able to do is uh, he was able to to take all of these varying influences and um, and put them in in layman's terms in some ways. I mean, the thing about Wilson is that his nonfiction is highly readable. It's uh, very accessible to to anyone, mm. and whereas a lot of these prior works may not be, even you know even Crowley, which uh, 
is very very esoteric some of his stuff is very esoteric and mm. leary coming from an academic background some of his stuff can be a little heady um but wilson has was able to take uh complicated and sometimes complicated sometimes very esoteric concepts and uh make them accessible to everyone and and he, and he's funny too it's not only accessible yeah. but it's entertaining and fun to read and i think that it's very important to to do something like that when you're dealing with uh very complex notions and very abstract very abstract notions as well you know meta- yeah. metaphysics is not a very simple thing to think about and read about or write about but wilson found a way to do so yeah definitely and i think a lot of people miss this with um especially with crowley that um he's actually got incredibly good sense of humor and um like we were saying before i think that's the big thing about wilson for me especially is the he'll talk about incredibly heavy subjects and um but then bring it round in this way that will make you kind of not take it too seriously <laughs> that makes sense yeah. so you'll look at like you know conspiracy theories yeah but yeah he'll put a kind of funny twist on it or he'll look at it in a certain way that make and it'll actually make you look at it in a certain way as well which is what i think is a great kind of a uh, at the time i was really into conspiracy theories and uh uh it was really good to see this it was kind of being deprogrammed from that by robert anton wilson it's this he deprograms you and reshows you stuff that uh in a completely different light which I kind of find really interesting and the other great you know, thing about him is he's completely he's the, one of the most optimistic writers you'll ever um, read as well often in this counterculture you'll, you'll be told the world the world's about to end or there's a you know a shadow government or a, you know a great conspiracy out there and new world order whereas Wilson tends to feel that you know he, he likes to sort of believe in human uh you know human qualities and human uh, ability to kind of uh, rectify wrongs and all this kind of stuff and it's really really nice thing to read i find when you're reading yeah. this other kind of heavy stuff in fact I th- I, you know a few things uh one one wilson i believe is able to keep one sane when they're <laughs> delving into especially conspiracy theory which has a Conspiracy theory and, and other topics, you know, like uh, occult practice and esoteric and these sorts of things are, um, I use the adjective crazy making. They have a very mm. crazy making potential to them. And Wilson, uh, reading Wilson alongside of, uh, of researching these sorts of things is definitely a good way to keep one sane. Um, so there's that, but also, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Wilson as well is that I think the effects of his... Uh, works are immediately felt upon reading them. So whereas he talks a lot about coincidence, um, it's, I, I, I've had the experience where as soon as I started reading Wilson's nonfiction, especially Cosmic Trigger and Prometheus Rising, I started feeling the effects of his work immediately. Like I started noticing coincidences and synchronicities in uh, in my life, and you know things would start to happen and very odd sorts of things uh, mm. that took. No more than just reading Wilson. That's all, that was really all that it took for these things to start happening to me. It was read Wilson, and that will happen to you too. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's. What it, I mean, uh, Richard Metzer in our interview with him talks about how he feels that some of um, Wilson's work won't last the test of time because it's uh, stuck within its kind of, uh, you know, the, it, within its time frame. He talks about things that are relevant at the time. But he also makes the good point that what should happen is an anthology of his work should come out. And um, 
you know, perhaps we'll see a Prometheus Rising and a Quantum Psychology in one kind of book, <laughs> kind of thing, sure. which, which would be really good. Or you know, and he he mentions like just like Leary, you know, we're starting to see these kind of Leary anthologies where we say like Leary on sex or Leary on drugs, that kind of thing. I think it'd be, I think we're not far off now from these kind of anthologies coming out of of Wilson's work, and I really hope it will kind of like crystallise the kind of. Uh, you know, kind of the main message of his, messages of his work rather into one text, and I think that could be quite a powerful tome. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you don't even see a lot of, um, I guess, you know, Wilson criticism or interpretations of Wilson out there. There are no books about Wilson's writing that I'm aware of. I think there's Whereas, one. I think there's one oh, called the Robert Anton Wilson Reader. I think it's called. Uh, I'll stick a link up to it on the site actually. But um, I've never actually read it, but I've heard it's actually not too bad. But it's a uh, yeah, it's the only one I've ever heard of, and I don't think it was hugely popular. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, okay, excellent. So that was uh, our Robert Anton Wilson tribute. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, as per normal, no show of sitting now these days would be uh, would be the same without the amazing Daddy Tanks, MySpace Heroes. We'll see you after that. Today's edition, Yeknom Sue's Edge, with Monkey Pickle, Sea Mass, with Yellow Then Blue, Beta Central, with Massacre Component, and Young Dental, with Full and Empty Country. If you appreciate what you hear, then appreciate with your hands, and send them a lovely message of support. <laughs>
Translation captured, mentable manufactured, pseudophytal for average. You ever felt the sky falling? I doubt the way I drop the heavens. Evangelic elements follow scriptures of impairment. The arrogance of these aliens chanting eminent landing. Veteran angels head first like a swan dive through a bonfire. I've gone higher than an alien abductee. You wish I didn't try to touch me. I'm so intangible from the man to recall. Don't miscalculate the configuration. The test version in the large percussion palpitation. This cardiac invasion of the fibrillator can save on the amount of voltage I use to shake the balance. This major moment of malice, zero will be salvaged. Through this tyranny of talents, who is able to manage the aggression out of the outlets? Band with open fountains, shoot past the mountains, coasting through the clouds. Clipping present danger, pumping through your cardiac chambers. Oxygenated, but flowing aimless. Universal sound waves created by the sold out family. With dead bodies floating in our fan base. Stop the press as the witnesses confess it Crumbling the Hollywood signs that King's erected Make a hole, take a stroll up on the red carpet Paparazzi cameras, my face up in the market Flash, crash, never no more Stereotype, uploading all your favorite songs More megabytes Humbling myself through the sea of compliments At least try to open up some minds and nonsense Do ya, your whole crew ya, yes you rock The military canis makes the whole crowd do rock No time to deal with all of these egotistical Chatterbox cats on the testicles You better check the pulse So numb to your stupidity Deflecting souls Acknowledging all alarms Release the rhyme stairs Ten four and rock G and beta to Omega Clipping present danger Pumping through your cardiac chambers Oxygenated but flowing aimless Universal sound waves Created by the sold out family With dead bodies floating in our fan base Cascading messages like nervous system supervised orders from the brain And a voluntary game caged in the mainframe page of a journal System chronologically internal, you stumble on your path My hovercraft, getting the class forward The food of my soul goes on two trees up in my orchard Endless knowledge and life hybrid Scan through the algorithm patterns of my iris Hybrid theories, experimental eargasms Reflecting from my kaleidoscope, mind spasms Collaborate the gaps of the modern day geniuses Juxtapose the juices, contagious diseases Illmatic, chain-smoking Asthmatics, following the protocol of my synopsis Sit at my own pace, involved in no rap race No judgments, I surf these waves with hydroplanes Clipping present danger, pumping through your cardiac chambers Oxygenated but flowing aimless Universal sound waves created by the sold out family with dead bodies floating in our fan base
Free Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to understand what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Okay, and we're back. There was another great uh, MySpace Heroes there from Daddy Tanky. always picked some really quite cool and weird music, which uh, I think everyone seems to enjoy, which is cool. Um, so, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me, Ken. I appreciate you inviting me back. Oh, no problem. We'll have to have you back on soon. Um, if people want to check out uh, Joe and obviously Raymond, who's been on the show um, quite a few times recently, and Austin, they used to do a really cool show called Out There Radio. And is it outthereradio.net? Believe. that's correct yep and there's 50 episodes and they kind of cover everything from uh the georgia guidestones to uh <laughs> ivan stang and magic and uh yeah everything really you kind of uh, do quite a broad uh assessment of the counterculture don't you really in that yeah everything but still not enough there's still times when i think oh this would be a great topic for out there radio but we don't do this podcast anymore so. <laughs> <laughs> But, but we do we do the disinformation podcast now. So if you want to check us out, uh, go to disinfo.com, uh, click podcasts, uh, or find us on iTunes. Excellent. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, what is the best email to get you on? Uh, my email is joe at disinfo.com. Okay, and if people want to get in contact with me, it's ken at... Uh, <laughs> I should know my email now. ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Um, we'll be back next week. This episode took a little long longer than normal to... Um, to come out just because I'm sure people appreciate because the vast amount of clips we had to get together for it and uh, and guests. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention as well is that we've been using a lot of clips in some cases without permission. So hopefully, because <laughs> people didn't get back to us basically, but I'm fairly sure they'll be okay. But I want to quickly plug two. If you're going to check out anything other than Rob Wilson's books, uh, there's a great DVD called The Maybe Logic, uh, which you can get. I believe it's at maybelogic.com. Uh, and that's by Deep Leaf Productions and they actually run something called the Maybe Logic Academy which is a, a kind of online school I guess uh, uh, with different lecturers and you go into the le- you know you pay for a course and uh, you'll get people like Rushkov who we've had on the show with Lomar Duquette and Ivan Stang and Are You Serious and uh, they're really great courses so I really really uh, encourage our listeners to you know go and check that out but at the very least check out the Maybe Logic DVD I mean you must have seen that Joe Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great. In music. fact, the the, the, the major Log- maybe Logic DVD is excellent, not only for the content of the documentary itself, but the extras on there are amazing. Mm. Uh, they there are interviews with many different people including people you've had on your show Ken mm-hmm. uh, like Rushkoff and Ivan Stang but also like uh, the author Tom Robbins shows up in the extras uh, for a long interview about Wilson and there's also some you know uh, live clips of uh, Wilson uh, various speaking engagements and that sort of thing mm. it's really, there's actually really even some uh, some clips of Wilson talking about the UK show The Prisoner uh, oh, which I don't yeah. know if you're a fan Ken but oh I love that show <laughs> yeah well it's a shame, check, out the, check out the extras on that DVD because he talks about the prisoner. Mm. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like two great worlds colliding there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And obviously, uh, one thing I, we haven't mentioned it actually, which we should uh, you know say R.I.P. to Patrick McGowan, who passed away recently as well. He's yeah. the uh, the crea- creator, writer, and star of the Prisoner, which I, I think was a fantastic show. It was one of the the great early countercultural kind of, well, in fact, the first real countercultural 
television show <laughs> and it was yeah. a fantastic so yeah check that out as well but another thing we've been... go, i think i'll go watch a few episodes right now actually yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, make sure weather balloons don't start coming you know to get you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um the other thing we've been using clips from is uh sounds true um who are a great audiobook company they do all sorts of cool stuff like uh, i think they've done like alan watts and they might have done something with crowley actually they're an audiobook company um and they released a fantastic set called robert anton wilson explains everything which is i think like a six cd set and it has like interviews uh, uh lectures and it's just fantastic so um uh, there are sounds true.com i think i'll stick up links to all these things on the site but if you get hold of that that is the in my opinion the, the definitive uh <laughs> robert anton wilson listening experience as well so if you Maybe Logic DVD and the Robert Anton's Wilson Explains Everything CDs are both highly recommended. And like I said, I'll link them both on the on the site at sittingnow.co.uk. Uh, we'll be back next week, a little bit earlier than this one, because uh, we only have one guest and it won't be quite so hard to do. Um, and we'll see you next week.